Would you turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you. I am uh, very excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, Andrew told me I have about an hour and a half uh, to be with you, so buckle up. We're going to be talking about the Great Commission. No, I'm kidding with you. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Thomas Ailey, my beautiful wife, Jordan, and we've got two kiddos, Lainey and Jet. Uh, we've been here with this body for a year and a half now, which just seems like time has just gone by really fast. Uh, man, the first time we walked into this church body, it was so welcoming and warm, and people just bombarded us with, with, with really wanting to get to know us. And so, man, this body has just been incredible. Everybody except for Andrew Cummings has been great. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Andrew and Jan, we have just grown to love them. They are dear friends of ours. Um, and so, this morning... I want to take you through the Great Commission, and so, but a little bit of also a little bit about myself is we, um, I was in ministry at a staff at a church for four years. The Lord called us to start a missions organization. I had no clue what I was doing, but I did it. Uh, four and a half years of that, and then the Lord uh, uh, asked us to merge Live Missions in with East West Ministries over in Plano, and that's where I'm currently uh, currently working at. And so uh, I'm actually the, the director of Next Gen at East West Ministries, and so we get to mobilize high school and college students on short-term mission trips. Uh, we get to see them travel the world, share the gospel, some of them for the first time. Uh, it's just an incredible time to see really their cosmos just being completely blown up by the gospel. Um, you know, East-West mission is this. It's to mobilize the body of Christ, to evangelize the lost, equip local believers to multiply disciples and churches among the unreached. We want to reach the 3.2 billion unreached people groups that are still don't know who Jesus is. And so one story about that is a man named Laku. So a short-term mission team went over to India and met this, name, met this man named Laku in his house, and very warm and welcoming, and uh, they got to share the gospel with him. And Laku, after the conversation, uh, the spirit really penetrated his heart, and he actually accepted Christ. And so he began to be discipled by a man from the local church there, and he found this passage here in Matthew 28 about going and making disciples. Well, this man wanted to take this seriously, and I don't know if you can see this picture behind me. So he began to make disciples. In over eight years, he got to disciple eight men. And so all of these dots right here on this picture are actually house churches that have come out of the discipleship from Laku. And so just the faithfulness of one man 
millions of people have now heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are now born again in India. And so, I mean, that's just an, an incredible story. So I want to read our passage just one more time before we really dive in. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, it says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as we come to the last section here in the Gospel of Matthew, I want us to understand something, that this is not the end. Okay, this is the climax of the story. This is where Matthew has been leading up to his entire book. And this is where Christ has been moving really throughout his entire life. This is the point in the chapter. Okay, I want us to, to really move to say that this message is so important that in all honesty, if you understand all of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and you don't understand this section of the book, you've completely missed it. We've completely missed the point of the book, okay? It's that serious. So you might ask, what is the point of this book? Well, it's to make disciples who then go and make disciples. That's our calling as believers in Jesus. That's why we're here on this earth. It's to make disciples. Now, now some believe that this is the most important statement that, that Jesus ever made. And the words that we're going to look at today have, have really shaped the lives of millions and millions of people through generations all around the world. So they've given meaning to people with vast sums of money and people with really no money at all. They've helped people give their literal lives over for Christ. And so these are Jesus' last words that he ever spoke. And these are words that Christians famously call the Great Commission. So Dallas Willard, who's a famous philosopher, says this, The Great Commission has famously, famously been treated by people as the Great Omission. In the previous passage, we see that Jesus, he's just been crucified, and he was laid in a tomb three days earlier. So something unexpected happens here in the passage. Jesus rose again. He resurrected from the dead. And his, his followers are just in complete shock. And now we're wondering what this resurrected Lord and Savior is going to do. And so I think that we would all believe that. We would all wonder if Jesus just appears out of nowhere after being crucified in front of our very eyes we would want to know what his plans are. So here, here in verse 16, he tells them, Now the eleven disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And so Jesus tells them to go and meet me on a mountain, and he will share his plans with them. So the eleven disciples, they went, minus Judas, because Judas has already betrayed Jesus. They go north to Galilee. So this picture behind me, some scholars believe that this mountain is called Mount Tabor in Galilee. And so this is just east of Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown. And so the Gospel of John really gives us more feedback on the encounters that Jesus had with the disciples 
before he met them on the, on the mountain. So I want to take a look at those encounters before we take a look at the encounter on the mountain. If you'll turn to John chapter 20, verses 13 through 17, we see Mary's encounter with Jesus at the tomb. So here Mary's weeping. She thinks that the gardener has taken the body of Jesus, and someone from the tomb, within the tomb, asks her, why are you crying? She asks that person, if you have carried away the body, please just tell me where it's at. So then Jesus says to her, Mary, Rabani, which is the Aramaic word for teacher. Mary goes and tells the disciples that she has encountered the risen Lord. We also see there in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, about Thomas's encounter uh, in, in the upper room, doubting Thomas. No, I'm not named after him, uh, but doubting Thomas. Doubt, Thomas was doubting as the other disciples said that they had seen Jesus, okay? So eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas and allows him to touch his hands and his sides, and belief immediately comes over Thomas, so Jesus states this, have you believed because you have seen me? And so blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Folks, that's you and I. That's you and I. We have not seen Jesus face to face, yet we believe just like Thomas. Also again in, in John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14, we see the seven disciples as they fished and as they ate breakfast with Jesus. Peter and the six disciples were out fishing uh, when they saw a man on the shore. And they went and they noticed whenever they got closer that it was Jesus. And so they rushed out of the boat and they went to the shore. And here Jesus asked them to eat breakfast with him with the fish that they had caught. Well, the fish that they had caught was 153 in total. If you catch that many, man, you had a good day on the pond. So Jesus asked Peter if he loved him three times here in this encounter. And so the disciples see Jesus previously. So the encounter on the mountain was not the first time that they have seen Jesus, okay? So what transpires is really instructive for our consideration and our response to verse 17 back in Matthew 28. So let's look at that. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But... Some doubted. The natural reaction to encountering the risen Christ is worship, as it should be. They immediately went and worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, this is absolutely radical, okay? Because students or disciples in that time normally don't go and worship their rabbi, okay? As this would have been against the first commandment, which the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. But the disciples see him resurrected, and they fall on their face and they worship him. They worship him because he is resurrected from the grave. So he's not like any other rabbi. He's not just a random teacher with good ideas. He is God himself, one that defeated death. So the disciples, they were appropriate to, to bow on their face and worship him as it is for us. So we, when we see in this passage that they fall down and they worship, but some doubted. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't really share with us which of the 11 disciples that it was that actually doubted on Jesus on that mountain, but it just states that some of them doubted. And so Luke's gospel, 
In, my, in chapter 24, verses 37, it says that they were startled and that they were frightened and that they thought that they saw a spirit. And so doubt as to should they worship this man? Perhaps. Doubt as to confusion about the whole situation? Yeah, maybe. Doubt because they didn't know how to respond given their past failures and track record? Almost certainly. And yet worship, even in the midst of doubt, is the wise and right thing to do. Do I, do I understand all that he's doing in my life? Worship. Am I confused? Am I unsure? Hesitating? Worship. Am I discouraged, depressed, in utter despair, almost at death's doors? Worship. He is the Savior, so worship him. But doubt means uncertainty. And so some of the disciples, as they lay worshiping Jesus, they were uncertain of what Jesus' plans were going to be next. I remember when I was a junior in high school, uh, and my, one, and my number one goal was to go make a lot of money that would just, uh, th- th- and have a lot of materialistic things that I thought would suffice my desires. And so my youth pastor in early Texas says, hey, I want you to come to Uganda, Africa with me. I said, bro, you don't want me on this trip, man. I have sin in my life that I'm not rejecting, and I, in all honesty, I don't want to get rid of it. And so he continued to pursue, and he says, I'll pay for half of your way. I said, done, I'll go. If you're going to pay for half my way, I'll get on a plane and go to Africa. I really just wanted to have an enjoyable trip. And so we went, we worked in the slums of Kampala, Uganda, and I saw poverty for the first time. And I saw the church just so vibrant. And we were working with a church and a pastor named Bamanya Deo Gracias. Uh, and, and, and this here, in this moment, this is where Jesus called me into full-time ministry. And I immediately said, no thanks. Ministers are poor and they have a lot of kids. God, I've got no interest in this at all. No, I doubted that Jesus, that he would call me out of all people. And it was a doubt that I struggled with for a long time. And ultimately gave over to his desires for my life. And I gave over to that calling because I know that Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth. As he tells us here in verse 18. Let's take a look at that. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the entirety of Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah King. Really throughout this entire gospel narrative here, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. But when all of this accumulates with Jesus making this declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me alone, is what Jesus says. Because Jesus is king of heaven and earth, and he alone holds complete and sovereign power. He alone has the right to exercise that power unquestioned and unopposed. He alone is the divine ruler of the universe. It is on this basis that that this authority that Jesus entrusts his disciple with this mission of God. So John Piper, only as he can, gets to the heart of these words. And he says this, Here we see the peak power. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. If you've gathered all the authority of the governments and the armies of the world and put them in the scales with the authority of the risen Christ, they would go up in the balance like air. All authority on earth has been given to the risen Christ, all of it. The risen Christ has the right to tell every man, woman, and child on this planet to, to, uh, to, to what they should do and think and feel. 
He has absolute and total authority over your life and over cities and states and nations. The risen Christ is great, greater than you have ever imagined. Now, I love this statement by Piper as it really shows the magnitude uh, of power that Jesus has and had while he was here on this earth. So he transfers this authority over to his disciples on this mountain, Mount Tabor in Galilee. And so Jesus, knowing that they were uncertain in verse 17, proclaims to give them all the authority in heaven and on earth in 18, proceeds to give the disciples their mission here in verse 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's four elements to his plan here in verses 19. There's a going portion, there's a making disciples portion, there's a baptizing portion, and a teaching portion. And so I want to look at each one of those in particular. So let's look at go first. The going portion means that people will literally go, okay? They'll cross barriers, they'll go to different people groups, they'll face many challenges. And we see this in Scripture, that the first 11 disciples, they went all over the Mediterranean world. They went to Africa and India and Europe, and they went all over to make disciples of Jesus. They traveled to tell people that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I've got an incredible job that I, I truly love. I get to see students be on mission. And like I said earlier, just see their cosmos just completely blown up with the gospel. Most of these students that we take on mission trips have never shared the gospel with anybody in their entire life, but they'll tell you, I've been a Christian for 10 years. Really? So we put them through a pre-trip training that teaches them how to share the gospel, how to work with a translator, how to enter into a culture that's not your own, how to not walk into a culture with an ego. We want people to go to the field well-prepared. Because if, you're aren't, if you aren't prepared, it can cause so much damage to the field. So we want to partner with the local church. It's important for us in each of these locations that we go to. And share the gospel around that church and invite them back into the church to, to then begin discipleship with them. And it's key for us that our pastors and our church planners that we're working with have a great understanding of the Great Commission and discipleship and how to actually do it. So when our students, student groups lead someone to Christ, these people are put into intentional discipleship with local pastors when we leave. So this is not, hey, uh, uh, you, you accepted Christ, good luck, we'll see, uh, see you never. It's no, they actually get to be invested into by the local church that we're working with. And so the going portion of this commandment is really important. And this allows a student to see what, what missions is and how to share the gospel. And the end goal for us is that they come back home as a catalyst for the gospel in their own community. We want to give them a missional experience, put them out uh, in, into the community, share the gospel so that they come back home and do it here. There was a girl from Colorado that came with us to Miami last year. She was completely wrecked with the gospel after having shared it for multiple days in a row. So she went home. And she began to do harvest days with her friends in their community. Uh, and so they would go out around their neighborhoods. They would knock on doors and they would share the gospel. They would begin to pray for people. They would begin to offer blessings to their neighbors. 
And so, man, it was just so encouraging to see this girl just on fire for the Lord. She started eight Bible studies in her high school whenever she got back. She's training up leaders in her high school to then lead small group Bible studies. But it was all for her saying, yes, I will go. So, friends, let me encourage you. Your mission field starts at home. It doesn't have to, it goes out your front door and into the neighborhood that you live in, and then into McKinney, and then into Texas and the United States, and then to all the nations. When we go, we are to go with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't go by yourself. We're to ask the Lord to change people's hearts for the gospel. If we were to do that, we will mess it up very quickly. I want us to get this mental picture of that whenever we say go with the Great Commission, that it doesn't just have to be somewhere overseas, okay? It doesn't have to be somewhere overseas. Maybe that might be for you, but your going also involves your family. Your going also involves your neighbor to the right and to the left. Jesus tells us in Acts 1, 1, 1-8, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Your mission field has to be where you're currently at. It has to. Not just going on a short-term mission trip once a year. That's not your mission. Your mission is here where you're at. Let's look at the making disciples portion of this commission. He tells us to go and make disciples. The emphasis on this verse is make disciples. That's the command. It's not a suggestion like we treat it. In the Greek, it means a command that Jesus gives to us. We call it the Great Commission, but it could actually be called the Great Commandment as well because the Great Commandment is to love your neighbors. The word disciple means to be a learner or an apprentice to a great teacher or a rabbi. And so being a disciple wasn't just about knowledge or information, but it was actually taking the actual lifestyle of the person that you're learning from. So when you were a disciple to a rabbi, you did the things that rabbis did. When they taught, you listened to them, uh, and, and then you believed what they taught you, and then you were to go and teach other people. And so our modern day word, apprentice or practitioner, are probably the best words to being a disciple that we have today. So if you work in a trade that you had to study underneath somebody, then you'll probably know what I'm talking about. You had to be underneath a master craftsman that you had to learn from, and then you went and followed their teaching. It's very similar to, you know, if you wanted to be a doctor, especially a surgeon, you had to go to a teaching university, and they performed surgery while you watch. And for years... As you watch this master surgeon, you learn and you observe. Then someone gives you the tools to start performing surgery and you begin your practice as a doctor. This is a picture of what a disciple was. They learned and they did what their rabbis did. And so in Jesus' day, being a disciple under a rabbi, this was a sought-after status. Kids in Jesus' day would go to school until the age of 13. Their focus of their education it was to study and study the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they didn't just learn about them, they actually memorized the first five books of the Bible. And so at age 13, these students would then go on to do a trade with their family, or they would go out and work in the fields, as this was an agricultural society. 
And so those who showed promise would then go on to do more education until the age of 18. And those who were exceptional at that class would then go on to study underneath a rabbi. And so they would go to a rabbi and they would ask them to study underneath them and ask if they can learn from them. They would begin to follow that rabbi and learn from them. And after years of learning theology, they would become a rabbi themselves. This is what we see happening in Jesus' life. He chooses 12 disciples to follow him and learn from him, and they lived like he lived. And if you believe in Jesus and you believe that he died for your sins and he rose from the grave and you've asked him to be the leader of your life, you are a disciple. You're not a disciple of human people, you're a disciple of Jesus. This is really one of the core identities that the Bible gives to born-again believers, is that you are a disciple if you are born again. Dallas Willard, again in his book, The Great Omission, says this, the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is only found three times, and it was first introduced to refer to a disciple of Jesus. So the New Testament book is about disciples, written by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus, okay? And so Jesus' discipleship was unique, and we see that taking place here in the Great Commission. For one, Jesus chose his disciples. Normally, a student would go and choose their own rabbi, but Jesus chose his own disciples. This is amazing because most of the disciples that Jesus chose, they were fishermen, tax collectors. They had jobs, which meant they, were, they had been overlooked by the, the, by the normal education system. These were guys that were not the best of the best. They were not the top of their class. They were overlooked by other rabbis and in a job of some kind. These men were chosen by God. There's a scene in the movie, The Chosen, that really shows Jesus calling his disciples to come and follow me. And in this scene, Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John, three fishermen. You can see the power of what it would have been like for a person like Jesus to select someone that was overlooked and that was not the top of their class. But the good news of this passage and discipleship to Jesus is Jesus says, come and follow me. Jesus wants us. He doesn't always just go with the best of the best. He calls and invites anybody that will come and follow him. But the timeless truth that I really want us to hold on to is this, is that Jesus uses our availability more than our capability to make disciples and be his disciples. Peter, James, and John, he calls them to come and follow me. That's the most unique part of Jesus' discipleship is that he wants us to come and says, follow me. Let's look at the third portion of the command, that's to baptize. Then they baptized, they led people to believe that Christ was alive. They baptized them into faith into him. And they baptized by water as a public declaration that they were now followers of Jesus. We also see in scripture that when someone was baptized, they became a disciple of Jesus. It wasn't a, hey, let me just go get baptized real quick so that I think that I and say that I did it to think that I now follow Christ. Believing, baptism does not cause the believing. The believing causes the baptism. Our elder statement of faith here at CRC says this about baptism. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ, obligatory upon every believer 
that where he is baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is to be done by immersion to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. Its only proper subjects are those who truly repented and believed in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. We want to see brothers and sisters come to the realization that their old life is gone when they become a disciple of Jesus. And what better way to do that, to be baptized in front of God and those that will keep them accountable. So the fourth portion of this great commission is to teach. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. This is a very unique part of Jesus' discipleship because normally a rabbi, they would just pass on information. And Jesus says, what I'm going to teach you, I actually want you to do. So Jesus' post-resurrection plan is that he is going to send out 11 overlooked disciples who are not the top of their class. And actually one of them, Peter, just denied Jesus a week earlier. He says, I'm going to send you out to actually invest into people. And when they decide to follow me, I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you to do. And they were to do this over and over and over and over again. It wasn't just a one-stop shop. There's one element to his plan that we really need to pay attention to. And he says that the, to go to all the nations. They weren't just to stay in Israel. They were to go everywhere, all around, as far as they were able to travel and tell other people about himself. But this really echoes the vision that the prophet, prophet Habakkuk had in Habakkuk 2.14. It says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So this prophecy spoken by Habakkuk that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Did you know 71% of our water or of our, of our earth is covered in water? And what Jesus desires is for the whole world to know him. Can we imagine 71 71% of the people that we work with were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus? Or 71 people living on your street were searching for the resurrected Lord. Or 71% of the, of the high school students here in McKinney, they were trying to figure out what it meant to turn the other cheek or it's better to give than to receive. Jesus' desire is for his presence to saturate the whole earth as much as the water saturates the earth. And how would he do this? Well, he would use everyday people like you and me to go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And we might be thinking, man, this is an awful plan. We may think, Jesus, you may have well just stayed on this earth for as long as you can and do it yourself because you're really good at this. But we have to understand the principle that we just said, that Jesus uses our availability more than our capability. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes this, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I want to focus in on this passage for a moment for how many, how many generations of discipleship do we see here in this passage in 2 Timothy 2.2? Well, let me give it to you. It's actually four generations 
of discipleship. Okay, So Paul says that the things that you have heard from me, so where did Paul get his information? Well, he got it from Jesus when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. So Jesus to Paul, that's one generation, and then Paul to Timothy, that's two generations, and then Timothy to reliable people, and then those reliable people were to go and teach others. Four generations are represented here in the passage of 2 Timothy 2.2. Jesus wants us to disciple people to the fourth generation. And this is the way that the whole world gets saturated with the knowledge of him. I got to disciple a young man during his senior year when I was a youth minister named Michael Cotter. Uh, I told him that I would disciple him if he committed to discipling other people. So I would also recommend you having that upfront conversation with those that you invest in. So Michael and I, we met once a week for an entire year. I told him that my job is done when you, the people that you are discipling are discipling others. So Michael went to Texas A&M University and began to disciple another college student that was in his fraternity that had actually just accepted Christ. And after a year of discipling this college student, that college student wanted to go and make disciples himself. And so that, that college student went and found a few high school students that were in his church's youth group. And so when Michael's disciple began to disciple other students, my job was done. I would periodically check in on Michael and see how his discipleship was going with his fellow peers. Now, my, my job is to move on to the next disciple and start all over. It wasn't just to, hey, I've done it, there's my checkbox, now I'm done. For me, I received the scripture from my local church, who Jesus was. I passed it on to Michael, Michael passed it on to his disciple, and his disciple passed it along to high school students. So one of the most meaningful moments in my life is that I got to impact people that I have never met. All because discipleship happened to the fourth generation. And that's the vision that Jesus is giving to us, is discipleship to the fourth generation. I mean, here's what I would love to see at CRC. And I hope that your family already does family worship and that you are discipling your children. But I would love to see the teens in this congregation being discipled by men and women in our body, aside from your own family. Then those students are going and, and discipling other students, and then all of us are pursuing those that are exploring Jesus and trying to figure out who he is in our community. And so the only reason that we're here in this church this morning is because someone took this command to make disciples seriously. And so how do we impact the people around us here in McKinney? Well, we do this by making disciple makers who will then go out and disciple more men and women, people who are passionate about seeing Jesus, about seeing other people come and experience Jesus and have a lasting relationship with Jesus. But making disciples will look different for everyone in this room. There's an element of going, an element of helping people know Jesus, an element of helping people obey Jesus, but everyone's discipling may look different. But Jesus wants us to saturate this city, state, and nation and to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And the way that we do that is by our availability, not just our capability. Before we conclude today, I want to share a few tips with you that might be helpful when you're making disciples. Number one, 
don't expect people to come and just ask you. You have to go and ask. I didn't go, but I expected people to come unannounced whenever I was in high school. I made the mistake of when Jesus says, he says, go. We need to take a step and ask someone to disciple us. And maybe for you, that's finding one person that you can begin to pray for, that you can go and ask to disciple them. Whenever I got to Albany as a youth minister, I knew that I needed to find someone that would disciple me. And there was a, there was a man in our congregation named Art Vertel. Everyone called him Pop Art. Pop Art at the time was 92 years old, still working cattle on the farm, just a man's man. Um, I went and asked Art to begin to disciple me, and he was just completely amazed that I would go and ask him to disciple me. So we would meet for breakfast once a month and just sit for, for two to three hours. And I'm just gaining wisdom and knowledge and his understanding of scripture from Pop Art. It was some of the most cherished times that I have. And I learned so much from him during those few years. And Pop Art and I still talk. He's still alive, still working on the farm. And I'm like, man, I don't know how you do it. Number two is go in with a plan. You can imagine not having a plan or a commitment really means that you intend to fail. If we don't go into discipleship with a plan, then consistency will not be present and it will eventually fade away. I had to be consistent with Michael during my discipleship time with him. And I had to have a plan each week that we met. And it doesn't have to be this, this long, drawn-out plan each week. Maybe the person that you are discipling simply just needs to sit and talk and confess sin. But go in with a plan. Number three is follow up with your disciples. This is key. Once you set them out, they need to know that they still have the support system around them that they can begin to ask questions. And releasing disciples too soon may be costly. It's like when a baby's born. They're breastfed for a few months, and then it's like we just tell them, hey, get up, go to the grocery store, get your own food, do it yourself. No, we need to be step in hand with spiritual infants and help provide for their needs. Continue to walk with your disciples until the fourth generation happens. But there's one more promise here that Jesus gives to us in this passage, and that's the very last statement in verse 20. It says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the most incredible thing about this is that we don't have to do this on our own. We are under the authority of Jesus, and he promises that he's going to be with us. And to the very last person, hears the gospel. To the very last person, responds to the gospel. To the very last person, takes their breath here on this earth. Jesus is with us. So what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. So what does this mission look like for you in your life? Are you going making disciples, baptize, baptizing, and teaching. I want to leave you with one last thing before we close. I came across a martyr's prayer called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. And this, this prayer just completely wrecked me. And this was written by a Zimbabwe pastor more than 100 years ago, right before he was killed for being a Christ follower. And it says this, I'm a part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. 
I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudit, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, and and am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I can't be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or pander at the pull of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes... For his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. May all of us count ourselves in the fellowship of the unashamed as we seek to live for Christ and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take this command that you have given us seriously, that we would seek to make disciples as you have commanded us to. Father, forgive us for where we have not obeyed you and your law. Obey, allow us to see those around us that are lost and are in need of the rich power of the Holy Spirit and a relationship with you, God. Father, we want to see people come to saving faith. Allow that to happen through the body of CRC. God, we want to be disciples who make disciples. We want to see our brothers and sisters come to know who you are. Forgive us from where we fail you, Father. We love you. Amen.
All right, let's stand to our feet. Let's respond to the great commission that we see in Matthew 28 by singing, facing a task that is unfinished. Defend 
the service as we sing uh, the song we sang last week. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will worship the Lord of hosts. Who is the great 
can be seated as we're dismissed with some announcements. few announcements before we're sent out by God's word. Um, if you're a visitor with us today, uh, we're so thankful that the Lord has brought you to worship with us, and uh, we would love to meet with you and, or meet you, and uh, if we can answer any questions about our church, we'd be happy to do so. There's a couple of ways you can contact us. You can contact us through the QR code on the back of your gathering guide or the screen behind me. Uh, you can take a, use your phone to access the Google Doc there and send to us, or you can email us at uh, info at crcmckinney.com and uh, I'm a, I uh, will be down here at the front too if you'd like to come up and ask any questions uh, feel free to do so and also just for a little bit of a uh, gift to you for a welcome gift uh, for you to coming today uh, we have a bag by the exit here feel free to grab one of those a uh, few goodies in there uh, for you uh, a couple announcements this week and uh, coming up in the next month of February on the back of the gathering guide, uh, today is our annual family meeting. It's at Community North Baptist Church at 4 p.m. And so please, if you're a member, uh, we'd love to have you there. Uh, plan for about a two-hour meeting, which is our normal uh, time for an annual meeting, uh, to be able to gather and uh, remember what the Lord has done in the past and look forward to what he uh, is guiding us into the future. And so children uh, under ages of five, there will be child care for that uh, for them. Uh, women's ministry will have a fun night of fellowship this Friday, February 3rd from 7 to 10 at the church house. It's a come and go event. And so it's just a time to gather, have fellowship, grow to, uh, to get to know one each other uh, more deeply. Their regular monthly meeting will be on the 21st uh, because... Uh, February 14th uh, is Valentine's Day, and everyone will be on dates, so I uh, won't be able to attend that. No, on February 1st will be the regular uh, meeting for women's ministry at Cottonwood Creek, so be looking uh, for that continual announcement as well. And men's ministry will meet on Tuesday the 7th of February at the CRC house from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We'll finish up the second part of the book of Thoughts for Young Men uh, by J.C. Ryle there. So uh, last announcement before sent out by God's word is if you have a few minutes to help tear down, put chairs away. If you have five to ten minutes, that'd be super helpful uh, to us and the teardown team. So please stand to your feet as we're sent out by God's word from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Have a blessed day.